Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Steven Soderbergh's No Sudden Move and I am very happy to be joined by my friend Josh Brown to talk about this one. Josh, thanks for being here. Hey, how are you doing? Good. So No Sudden Move is the newest film, as I said, from Steven Soderbergh, his second straight release that went straight to HBO Max. It is set in 1950s Detroit. It follows a few uh, low-level criminals who come together to kind of do a task for a much more powerful person. Those low-level criminals include Don Cheadle playing Kurt Goines, Benicio Del Toro playing Ronald Russo, and Kieran Culkin playing a guy that I think is only known as Charlie. And they they are tasked at at the behest of a uh, another kind of gangster middleman played by Brendan Fraser, uh, which I was, who I was very excited to see, who um, grew a couple extra necks for this movie. I would say he plays a guy named plays a guy named Doug Jones. And hey. oh, sorry, there oh. there is a sad story to Brendan Fraser's weight gain. I should say. Oh, okay. I, I honestly wasn't even like making fun of his weight. I didn't know if they like. I didn't know if that was prosthetics, so I feel bad, but uh, uh, it works for the part, though. Yeah, yeah. By, by the way, side t- now that we brought it up, I feel like people want to know. So, uh, like, you know how, like, uh, the old adage, like, you know, I do my own stunts, actors saying that they do their own stunts or whatever? Yeah. Uh, Brendan Fraser is a reason why you shouldn't do your own stunts. Um, so he was kind of like that he was in that tom cruise mindset when he was filming the mummy movies right. but on one of those mummy movies he did a stunt that like caused like serious like back injury to him or whatever mm-hmm. that like it, it that's it, it's part that's one of the reasons why his career has stalled right um was that he was like he was on his back for like years you know what i mean or it was like very painful for him to like walk and shit yeah but then the other an asshole yeah and that's one part of why he's kind of been absent from movies for a while and why he has to get weight loss i think that's the weight yeah i I know the one about there's also the sexual assault angle of it too right yeah yeah yeah. he's had a rough 10 years but he's always a welcome presence that's yeah no i was very happy to see him and i it's cool that he got to uh work with steven soderbergh uh, because i think a lot of actors just like working with him and uh so yeah, he he plays this other middle-level gangster named Doug Jones, who gets who or who arranges for those other three guys to like babysit this family while the Charlie character goes with uh, the patriarch of the family named uh, Matt, played by David Harbor, to go get a document from his boss's safe. And we don't know what this document is. It is a MacGuffin for a lot of the movie. And after these guys uh, eventually track down this document, it becomes a kind of more of a race to see how far up the chain of. Uh, who different people have contracted down to them are so they can, you know, blackmail the right person about the existence of this document. And I think the movie goes in a lot of different directions. And uh, it, it, I, I, w- I would not try and explain the rest of the plot. And I'd probably struggle to do so if you put a gun to my head. And uh, which is, you know, as to how much of a detriment to the movie that is for you, your mileage may vary. Uh, but I still think that I still found a decent amount to like in the movie anyway. And I let to kind of talk about that because, you know, this document ends up tying into like a lot of other real world factors that will uh we can also discuss uh i guess josh i'll first start by saying uh you know i don't I, I, all i know is that you didn't give this movie the highest rating on letterbox but i i, I first want to ask before we get to all your reasoning for that are you still impressed that our guy steven soderbergh probably made the first ensemble quarantine movie just like we predicted he would about <laughs> this time a year ago yeah you know i i had forgotten the fact this did, that this the- did film during the this did film late 2020 
Yeah, I'm. I completely forgotten the fact that like he must have made this during COVID. Though is now we're at the point where like I don't know if this film was made pre-COVID or during COVID. You know, like of stuff I've I've been watching. This, but was gonna, I had... this was gonna film in April of 2020. That obviously couldn't happen. It kind of then filmed started filming in September and wrapped in November. Yo, by the way, if you had told me that like he made this movie, wow he was producing the oscars i i would have believed you too which I, <laughs> i'm still which by the way i still want him to reckon with that that disaster that fiasco i want him to own it and 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 explain what went wrong i think is impediment to every entertainment journalist right now on his press tour to quiz him about what the fuck was that best actor shit um and why didn't you show clips but i digress but also but also i highly doubt that he did not make a movie out of that night i swear to god he he must have but um you alluded to like my low rating of this film here's the thing you know me i like soderbergh a lot he's one of my you know it's a weird thing with soderbergh because i wouldn't necessarily i don't have any films of his i've like rated like a five star there's films of his that I really, really like, like uh, Out of Sight, Ocean's Eleven, The Lie Me, and um, uh, Logan Lucky. But, like, you know, I never, I, I he's unlike other directors that I highly admire, I don't think he has, like, a film that I've rated, like, as, like, great like this is the best film of that year or something like that so, so for me for me I, i'm the opposite of you and then i do have a couple of those oceans 11 being one of my favorites and i i also i also really love magic mike so and i and I, there's others i like but i think those are probably my top two for him and then out of sight not far behind which i think has the probably the most parallels to this movie out of any of his yeah and and and, and it's funny to this for me it, it does remind me a little bit of oceans in terms of like it's a crime and there's a heist element to it but also um the film that it recalls to me the most it's not a film by him but made by one of his contemporaries fargo mm-hmm. uh, i see a lot it, to me this feels like an episode of like the noah holly like fargo where like it's like you know central premise of fargo but set in a different time period and similarly hard to follow at times <laughs> yeah and then and in speaking of its 90s like crime um sort of where it kind of goes back around uh don Cheadle's character in the movie feels like his character in devil in a blue dress which came out in 95 and that's like uh detective noir like that was an interesting one i'm not sure if you you've heard I've of not it, seen right? that. i've not seen it i've heard of it though yeah, 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 that's the one with Denzel, um, and he's like this black detective in like 40s Los Angeles. And he's a, oh, he's a black detective. I kind of guessed that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's a it's it's a huge plot point okay, <laughs> in the in the it, movie because it's the 40s. I got you. Yeah, 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 yeah. But like in that movie, like Don, this is like the I think this is Don Cheadle's first like breakout role. Um, and so in that movie, uh, Don Cheadle um, plays this ca- character named Mouse, and he's sort of like this, you know, weasel-like type character or whatever. And it doesn't feel too dissimilar to this character in this movie. Gotcha. And, yeah. But in terms of Soderbergh, I really like him a lot. The thing that I like the most about Soderbergh is how prolific and eclectic and how experimental he is with even if you don't think all the experiments work, you just got to like hand it to him for always like taking shots. You know what I mean? Yeah, even if one of his movies doesn't work for you, you still can find stuff to respect about it. And I, I which I would say is probably also the case with this one. So and I, I think in some ways he's experimenting with this one, too. Uh, yeah. So. 
What about the experimenting did not work for you? Because I know you weren't super high on it. Well, for this one, I think, like, in terms of the plot, like, once you, I think the most thrilling scene in the movie is when the family's first taken hostage, you know? Um, and when, like, Kieran Culkin is, like, about to screw up that, you know? Um, I think those are the most tense, like, sequence. That's the most tense sequence in a movie. But outside of that, I don't think there's there's much action or stuff that is as thrilling or involving outside of that uh, scene in the beginning of the film, you know? Um, but that, but on a formal level, I really like, uh, like, you know, like Soderbergh's, like, you know, the opening uh, sequence with Don Cheadle, which actually is very reminiscent of the Regina King opening to the Oscars this year. Um, but like, I like, you know, Soderbergh using like a w- extremely wide angle lens, like not all the time. I think it fully works, but it does you know, like this. I see what he's going after it reminds me a lot of some of these like movies from the 40s and 50s where maybe like the plot is kind of generic or you know you're not really that invested in it but you can admire the craftsmanship of the filmmaking in terms of you know what Soderbergh is doing in terms of like the camera work um especially with the wide angle lens and stuff like that and like the period detail and just the actors kind of having fun chewing the scenery yeah I, I mean i think that's an important last note that you landed on there because you know i struggled with the story of the movie a lot and i want to talk to you about the choices that they made and how they kind of you know uh revealed their cards but in spite of that and me because i i mean I, I don't need to have a i don't need to have a big plot with my movie i just don't like it when you like throw a plot at me and that seems like something you need to really be following and then you just kind of decide not to pick up all the pieces of it and uh that's what like you know i think i see i i consider oceans 11 as much a hangout movie as it is a heist movie oh and what i was gonna say about this movie for like you know it's it's basically Soderbergh doing a genre exercise right he's trying to do this film nor kate with mixed with his caper heist stuff and for that type of movie because he's just like doing an exercise it probably would have been been more beneficial if the plot was a lot simpler though i don't think it's like that that complicated you know um but i just think you're not that emotionally invested in it um as you would be in like oceans 11 because you know in that film you're both enraptured by Soderbergh's playful filmmaking, but also the chemistry that the different cast members have with each other. Yeah, and I don't think these people don't have chemistry. I just don't know if it spends so much time trying to establish it. You know, even, you know, I think the getting the gang together scene in o- scenes in Ocean's Eleven, you know, we're going to see how uh, Danny and Rusty, like, have history with a lot of these people. And, you know, even just introducing them with some of them within three minutes, you learn a lot about all their relationships and who those people are and here like there's not really history between these three guys you know it's kind of, you learn something about them when you see how they're interacting when they first come together and i mean hell i like it when there's the first scene where they're just kind of all hanging out in that house planning it the, the day before uh and I, I i was also very happy for kieran colkin to get to you know be in a movie like this it was pretty cool to see him do that and it's very interesting to see him in a movie like this because he has a very like modern acting sensibility. You know, sure. like I, I think of his like persona as like this very like sarcastic, cunning uh, person like on Succession, and it's kind of see him interact in this like world where like it's in the 50s and 
just like and he's still kieran you know what i mean like he's still doing a variation of that but like seeing how it fits with everybody else who are like playing this straight as like a 50s like film yeah noir. and don Cheadle might have been like my might have been might have been my favorite performance in the movie though when it first came, came across i'm like okay well i've seen don Cheadle, i've seen benicio del tor i've seen these people do soderbergh stuff and so I'm, I'm not gonna get too excited about that and then i got like more excited as i saw like them go further down the cast list and i saw uh, and I saw Kieran Culkin, and I saw Brendan Fraser, and I saw Bill Duke, and I saw Julia Fox, and I was like, oh wow, this is like I'd forgotten that it has had all these people, and, and John Hamm, and I was like, oh wow. Uh, yeah. And I was gonna get to John Hamm because I was just like, the thing with like John Hamm is like, now you've seen him in a role like this, like he he's yeah, made he's basically <laughs> what he did in the town, he plays an FBI agent or something, you know? Or or Mad Men, where it's like you, you know what he he looks like a '50s like movie star. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, but so I mean, I was just excited to see all these people do their thing. Look, it's it's such a hard plot to talk about. But I'll probably just go ahead and spoil it now. Um, and people, it's on HBO Max. It's easily accessible. People can go watch it. I, I like them. I even like the Matt Damon cameo in this better than I do in uh, than I do in Unsane, which is a movie I did like that's been in his recent, you know, his his recent filmography. Oh, by the way, when we got to the Matt Damon cameo, I think this I I think this is actually a really good performance as a cameo. Mm-hmm. Um, because like by the way, to me when I saw Matt Damon in this movie, he looked like Woodrow Wilson, and I'm like. Ah, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe that could be um, his next role. But um, this is why I feel a little bit bad, because the last couple Soderbergh movies since he got out of retirement, it, like it has been Logan Lucky, Unsane, uh, Low Flying Bird, High uh, Flying Bird, which is high, my favorite, high, which is my favorite of the post-retirement ones. Yeah, High Flying Bird, The Laundromat, and um, Let Them All Talk. And the only one I don't like out of those is The Laundromat. Um, the Laundromat was not good. Yeah, but like what what's kind of, what was kind of interesting about this film because like two of those films he shot on an iPhone and in this one he's doing his best to make this movie look like you know replicate the look of a of fifties film. Actually, when I was watching it, my roommate like stepped uh, walked by, he saw it on TV, he's like, "Is this movie like from the fifties? Like, you know what I mean?" Uh, I think I think I'll take I, th- I think Peter Andrews would take that compliment. <laughs> and, and for those of you listening, Soderbergh, man of many aliases, um, he is his own editor and cinematographer, but he does not take credit on the film. He goes under a pseudonym for those. Yeah, he's, um, as, a, as a cinematographer, he's Peter Andrews. As an editor, he is Mary Ann Bernard. Yeah, which I believe is his mom name. Oh, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, and so what was interesting about this film is like him, like, you know, after doing these very like state of the art like we're gonna shoot this on iphone stuff um him being more formalistic him going i guess to this is closer to his work on like the nick than like his last couple of films where he's using the latest digital camera to like prove how that's economical a, he could be that's a good call and this is actually the first podcast i've done on a soderbergh movie since watching the nick because i watched that at the beginning of the year mm-hmm. and i did yeah. not do a podcast and let them all talk so yeah which that was a good. You should have called me for that one. That one was really good. One of the best movies of that year. Really fun. And if for those of you guys who missed it, it's basically you get like Meryl Streep and a bunch of older actresses like Candace Bergen. They're on a boat. With Diane like, Weist. Yeah, Diane Weist. I uh, can't forget her. Um, and it, with Lucas Hedges, and they're just on a cruise ship. <laughs> 
I had a lot of fun. To see, like I kind of fell down a rabbit hole when I was trying to prepare for this podcast. I somehow ended up clicking over to something about that movie where, and then Meryl Streep just talking about how they made it. And it was just like, they had like no crew. It was just like uh, some guy holding like a, like a, like a, a boom mic or a, or like a, a sounding thing. And then Soderbergh just going around on a wheelchair with the camera. And that was it, which is pretty cool. On an actual cruise ship while it's like yes. in operation. And this is like right before COVID, I believe when they mm-hmm. shot that one. Um, and so, yeah, like it, that, it, and that's the, that's the thing you have to respect about Soderbergh. It's just the playfulness, the economy of his movies, how, like how well paced and there's not that much fat and stuff like that, which is sort of disappointing. By the way, I don't blame Soderbergh for this movie. Weirdly, like to me, his direction is actually pretty good. I just think the script doesn't have that much action in it to make it that involving. I think everybody in the movie is good. I just think it's kind of uneventful outside the fact of the family being um, uh, held hostage. And then at the end of the film, it throws this weird, which is classic uh, Soderbergh. If you want to know what's a consistent theme in in Soderbergh's movie, is sort of like the uh, corruption of corporations. Um, he he's he's always like fascinated by these like you know corrupt or the bureaucracy of corp- corporations and how they're kind of like fucking us all over. And in this film, it feels very tacked on. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the thing I want to talk about. So we're talking around the plot a little bit because it does get convoluted. But like as I kind of indicated, these guys, they kind of work their way up a chain of uh, mobsters and corporate corporate overlords to, you know, figure out who they're going to blackmail with this document that they come into contact with. And I I, I saw a – in what, what, what I'll say is that, you know, I, I really haven't spoiled anything yet besides the Matt Damon conversation. But what I'll say without saying exactly what that document is, I guess, what I can say is I was reading a – I was reading a review earlier from uh, from Vince Mancini of Uproxx, and I one of the quotes from it really struck me where he said, it feels like Soderbergh wanted to make a movie about urban renewal in the car industry but couldn't commit and instead made a, quote, fun, heisty thing in which characters mentioned those things instead, which I – which I mean fair, and I'm wondering like – Which neither of us would necessarily mind if like that heist thing was more fun. That's my thing. It's like – I get what I get that decision, you know, like I don't know how you you don't go to like the things that you go to see a Steven Soderbergh movie for. Like, it's hard to get those if you're just going to watch a movie about like redlining and corrupt in and, and the corrupt car industry. Like, I'm, I, 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 I don't want to say he couldn't do it, but I have a harder time picturing that movie. So I in a way I kind of respect him, like trying to make a movie about that stuff without like making a movie explicitly about that stuff. It's just the the path to get there i think they did withhold so much information that it, it made it hard to really find anything to hold on to in this story by the way by the way you're gonna dislike me for this but you know what movie i think does a better job of tackling those issues with this type of genre uh tableau yeah oh wait wait you you have you have it on the tip of your tongue you know what i'm about this no story. no 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 i'm so i'm worried what you're gonna say if it's gonna make me uh really get, get upset you said it was gonna make me get upset i'm curious motherless brooklyn i didn't see motherless brooklyn oh you're missing out you're missing so out you actually like that i don't know why i i just you know i think it was only in theaters for like a week and i was like <laughs> yeah. man this did not I be was a good there. it's like two hours and 40 minutes um, i i probably just didn't have the time i don't know i mean well, I, I i would have watched it if like i had nothing else to do but i just for whatever reason i just couldn't carve out two and a half hours to go watch ed norton's passion project which i respect him making getting done you know yeah by the way you know that like old saying you know one for them um one for me 
like yeah. uh, motherless brooklyn falls into neither of those categories it's like it's more of a one for me and arjun like that's it that's who it was made for <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or like or like on if you're ed norton probably like one for me and then i gotta do another 10 for them since they let me do this <laughs> yeah no no because like that was me so much so what's crazy about that movie right so it's based off of this like 90s like noir which takes place in the 90s right and and edward norton it's like i like the structure of that but fuck like this you know what i really want to actually adapt um robert caro's the power broker about like um robert moses and how he basically rose to power and control new york city and redlined the hell out of it right um and so he transfers this 90s detective noir setting uh, this the 90s detective story into the 1940s and and it's all and the best part about that movie and even like if you didn't like the movie people would say is like the politics of the film like when it gets into the nitty-gritty of it um we're like um william defoe is this like land developer like architect or whatever like when it's getting into the politics of like new york city uh city council like land ordinances that's when the movie's really pumping you know mm. but it is also doing what this movie is doing where it's doing it in a detective noir setting i think that movie is far more successful despite what critics say um at what it's attempting to do um, that well, then knows how to move. It's funny that you harp on the setting there with respect to Mother's Book, because I think that's one of the coolest things about uh, No Sudden Move is that like I even if I don't know if it really needed to like try and say whatever it was saying about redlining because it just mm-hmm. it just really paid a little bit of lip service to why that was an issue, but the fact is the setting does kind of like. I think he does effectively convey the setting of what Detroit must have been like in that time where before like the auto industry kind of hit its rough patches and like there was a lot of big business there. But it, and I, I think I, I don't know if you read that Vox article I sent you earlier, uh, mm-hmm. but like that that kind of talks some about just like, you know, what some of those uh, what some of those black neighborhoods were like before and after like certain, you know, government actions were taken. And I was like, I, I, I so I had that in mind. And also it's just like. I, you got to respect Soderbergh because he makes the kind of movies that like people complain about, like not not getting made anymore. Yeah. And he fi- and he finds a way to do it. And I don't know what the budget of this movie is. It's not on Wikipedia. And I think movies made just for streaming have a better do a better job being able to keep that secret. But it's like even if he didn't have a, a even if he only had a fifteen million dollar budget, I think it looks like a forty million dollar movie. And I respect him being able to create that version of nineteen fifties Brooklyn in a pandemic and really bring it and and really like make it feel authentic. And uh, you even you even made a note that your roommate kind of bought that it was uh, set in that time also. So it's like. I, I I I was kind of taken with the setting and how effective it was in transporting me there. Even if like, look, I I don't love this story, but I like a lot of what's going on around yeah, it. Yeah, no, and that and that was basically where I was at. Like like, my thing was like I I liked seeing Soderbergh play in this Molo. I liked the uh, craft, like the costumes and the production design by Hannah Beachler. Um, like all that stuff was good. I think my issues are with the script is by ed solomon who's actually a good screenwriter he's yeah. the guy behind the men in black movies and um the bill and ted stuff and sometimes there's some good monologues that some of these actors get to say um i just don't think in terms of the plot it comes together that neatly but i do like seeing you know soderbergh doing this genre exercise and also i would say that like and here's the thing i it left me cold but Kind of like where, you know, if you give like 10, 
if you if I gave you like ten noir films or whatever, um, I think like you know everybody would kind of respond to each one a little bit differently. They would have like their three or four of maybe the lesser famous ones that they would say, "Hey, these are the ones that I responded to the most." Number one, number 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 one for me is the little things. <laughs> <laughs> But like I could see it's one of is this is a type of movie where like if it like 20 years from now, if it came on to like the Criterion channels, like film noir section and like someone said, actually, you know, Soderbergh was doing some interesting stuff there. I wouldn't blame someone for for saying that, you know what I mean? Um, But I do think this is like more um, uh, uh, back catalog Soderbergh than it is like top tier. And I feel like in. And I'm not I'm I mean, I feel like noir is a little bit of a blind spot for me. I've done a better job in the last few years of going back to watch old movies. And I feel like I mean, I've watched a couple of noir films, but there's there's definitely more I can do. So as I was watching this towards the end, I kind of had the thought, am I supposed is there someone who I'm supposed to be cheering for in this? And I think that's probably like maybe a little bit of a staple of certain types of noir films where it's like even some of the ostensible heroes might just like not be the most likable or might have something about them that's a little darker. So you're not they're not automatically like the hero uh, hero. And but I was thinking like at the end, I was like a lot of characters are making choices and making making moves, for lack of a better term. And I'm like, I don't know who I'm supposed to be like happy for here if I'm just supposed to be like caught off guard by the turn it took. And not that a lot that's of double necessary. crossing. Yeah, you know, some of it not as set up as it could have been. Some of it, that's fine. It's out of nowhere. It was, I mean, if it kind of felt like a departed type of movie, you know, where it had like five different endings. Uh, and, I, and I and I was like, huh, I don't know who I'm supposed to like be happy for at this moment because every it seems like uh, someone else is getting a new break every time. And a couple of these people, I don't really know what they're doing either. So, uh, which I'm okay. Which, by the way, I'm okay with. That. Yeah, I'm okay. Like, and that's kind of comes with the territory with the genre of like the morally ambiguous characters that you're and, and anti-heroes that you're sort of on their side ostensibly you know what i mean mm-hmm. um and like the double crossing you know like you know it it's it feels in line with something like asphalt jungle um um or the killing um and i think like those influences are clearly there i just don't think it, it it's like by when we get to the final double cross of like Benicio del Toro and the girl, I don't necessarily buy that the girl was able to pull that off based off of what we know of that girl up until that point. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean we we knew. I, I mean I don't know. I mean I I I wasn't as bothered by that necessarily though. I think like I think she ultimately like uh, might get it might, out of the characters that make it out of the movie. She might be in the worst situation actually because uh, there's just a dead body at her house. Uh, um, no, no one might find uh, Benicio del Toro, but this is another dead body at her house that she's responsible for. Uh, but like she knew enough to know that they were, she was gonna have a lot of money in a bag, so she might. I, I, I didn't. That, that wasn't something that gave me a lot of pause. It was just like, oh, she probably just uh, wants to find the right moment to make off with this, and she knows she's gonna have a lot of money at some point in the future. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. And, and it's again, it's not anything that like would give me pause either. It just, it just feels like a double cross for the sake of double cross more than anything. Like this, like this, where this movie has to go to like be a little bit more interesting at this point. Um, is, yeah, but I, I, I had a little more trouble with the, and I, and I, and I like Bill Duke and I, and I, I kind of like what he's doing in this movie, but it, it wasn't totally clear to me with the moves he was making either. You know, the Don Cheadle character tries to cut him in and double cross the Benicio del Toro character, which fine, I guess maybe he thinks he can trust them a little more, even if like he's given them reason in the past not to trust him. Uh, and then Bill Duke's like, no, I don't want all of this money. I'm going to take 125 grand from this other guy you guys were going to try and rip off. And I don't want that 375 because I don't need all that smoke. 
but I will take 125,000 from another guy. That's probably not really sure if he's getting what he's paying for. And I'll make off with that. And I'll just like pay you off. And I'm like, I, I don't know if those actions are totally consistent. If you're not, if you're turning down the big money, cause you're saying you don't want to piss someone powerful off, you know, and maybe that wasn't his motivation, but it wasn't very clear. Yeah. By the way, out of it, okay, so out of the post-retirement Soderbergh movies, mm-hmm. um, so it begins with Logan Lucky, uh, Unsane, High Flying Bird, Laundromat, Let Them All Talk, No Sudden Move. Um, so your favorite is Low Flying, uh, High Flying Bird, right? High Flying, mine's my favorite, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. And least favorite is Laundromat, right? Easily. And then, so for me, this is right above. No, I think I put Laundromat over it. I'm gonna be really. Honest. I think God, I just don't I think, like the laundromat. It's like I, 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 there's ver- there's like three different movies in the laundromat I might like, and it just couldn't decide on which of them it wanted to be. Yeah, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I don't like it either. But out of those three movies that you said, that's within the laundromat. I think one of them is better than anything that's in No Sudden Move. I think like laundromat's laundromat's highs are higher. Is, I, think, I, 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 think, I, I think the first half of Let Them All Talk might be the best out of all of them. I just didn't like the second half of Let Them All Talk as much. You know. Yeah, let them all talk. I'm just such a huge fan of like that was just like, I liked hanging out with those characters. Um, uh, like I like for me, I think Logan Lucky is probably the best. I I really love Unsane, and then I would put Let Them All Talk right there. Yeah, um, I think I mean, Logan Lucky is probably close up there. I haven't rewatched it since I saw it in theaters, and it was just I had such high hopes for it, you know, and I just Soderbergh heist movie. What? I mean, I, I love oceans 11. I like Adam. I love Adam driver. I, I like Channing Tatum. I, uh, I was just, I was just like super excited for it. And like, it, it, I probably got like my expectations a bit too high. It wasn't as funny as I wanted it. I was expecting it to be. I don't, I think Daniel Craig finally got the Southern accent thing more right with knives out than he did in that one. It felt like, (laughs) it felt like, look, I, yeah, I'm from the South. I'm a Southerner who identifies more as a Northerner and it still kind of even rubbed me the wrong way, the way it kind of depicts some of the Southerners. Like, I don't know. It just, it just felt like it was kind of laughing at them a little bit. And I was in, you know, and if, and that was where I was hoping to generate the laughs from. And I just didn't get laughs from that, you know? I, I didn't feel like it was mining too much from that. I thought it mostly avoided that. Not to say that there aren't jokes like that, but um, I, 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 I think you're giving it. I, I think you need to give it a rewatch. That's my take. Yeah. Like I, okay. I think you, I think you came in with such high expectations, and I think you couldn't appreciate it for what it was. I don't know. It's kind of a movie about the economy too. Like in that these yeah. people, like they, they, in the, in the money they're trying to get. And I was just like, I, I he's already done that with Magic Mike, and he did it better. Oh. Oh shit! You know that's what I was thinking of with No Sudden Mood. I'm glad you brought that up because mm-hmm. I was a part of me as much as I like seeing Soderbergh play with this like noir setting, you know, this 50 setting. I part of me was thinking if this movie was set in like 2008, it kind of I think would be a little bit more vital. You know what I mean? Where it like if you had the setup of these like if it was set in more contemporary times after the 08 crisis. I think like you would have probably like a grittier crime felt while like and I think like the story, the plot of it probably would have popped more where you have like a 50s plot, but now in a contemporary setting and him still doing like a genre exercise. See, but I, I think it feels vital if they just don't hide the ball as much on the MacGuffin. And, you know, I it like it does kind of feel tacked on at the end. Again, like we said, we don't necessarily need the whole movie to be about that stuff, but like. 
it, it becomes it just it doesn't become apparent till the end that and like a lot of his movies do and as you said earlier like they they have something to say about corporations and it just doesn't want to say that about it doesn't well, it doesn't want to say that stuff early enough even if like car companies are kind of hanging over this whole movie in a certain way it just i was just like man like i you know if, if you make it a little more clear a little sooner like what these car companies are up to is kind of nefarious like that's a pretty timeless message right there the fact that like these companies would rather you know like uh pay off low-level criminals and and just give up give up hundreds of thousands of dollars like that and and kind of collude together to all help their own bottom line like that's something right there it's just it chooses to wait till the last five minutes to tell you that's kind of that's who the main bad guy is here no i'm gonna be honest with you now like in the movie there are like it, it does set that especially in the second up second half it does like sort of set up uh some of those elements about this car stuff that's going on in the background but when like you get those end credit like title cards that's like you know this is what's happening with like general motors and detroit afterwards i was just like caught completely off guard i was like wait this was what this movie was about this entire time um again it does make reference it uh, to that you know during the like the second half of the movie but it was to me it was one of those things where like and and thing with all these noir films that like people have to realize is like usually there is some type of government or corporate corruption that's happening in the background like in Chinatown it's the LA water system you know um and and so like it's following in that tradition it's just like like it was so much in the background this entire movie that like I just didn't give a fuck when i finally realized that's what i was supposed to be giving a fuck about you know right. i got you um, um hmm. is there anything is, is there anything else you want to talk about any of the other uh any of the performances that really did it for you any other uh any other scenes or uh, uh peter andrews technical flourishes you wanted to shout out it was fun seeing julia fox like this is like you know her first like uh, role post uncut gems and to see mm-hmm. her stretch her range because like she wasn't an actor prior to uncut gems i think even she went on the record at some point during uncut gems press and was like yeah the safties is kind of like me how i was and just kind of wanted me to be myself for that role in some way like here it's like she's having to you know try and you know i don't want to say try like she, she's playing like a, a 50s housewife and doing a reasonable facsimile of it oh by the way do you, you know who i think was up for the bill duke role um uh like pre-pandemic they had like i didn't get like a different they had a different cast and then post-pandemic they had to uh, switch it up and so for the bill duke role i believe cedric the entertainer was originally supposed to be in it Ooh, what did he do recently that was like actually top five no 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 no. he was in something else where it was actually kind of a somewhat serious role and i'm forgetting what it was off the top of my head i'm hold on uh oh he was in first reformed Oh right, he was. Yeah, he was good in yeah, that. That was good yeah. casting. Yeah, mm-hmm. Set, like yeah, Cedric has been good in a couple. Like top five was one where he was pretty good in. And in the original cast for this movie was Josh Brolin, Don Cheadle was always there, Sebastian Stan, and John Cena. I think George Clooney was going to be in it at some point too, but I don't really know what party yeah. he was going to be. Yeah, Clooney dropped. Maybe he had the. Uh, um, I could have seen him doing a cameo. I could have seen. I, that's the one I could most easily see him doing. Uh, but like, I, I don't know. I got, I got, I got the idea somewhere that it seemed like he was maybe meant to have a bigger part than that. I don't know. Um, maybe he's David Harbor. Oh, I, I, I kind of see that, except I don't really necessarily buy him as like, as, as much of a schlub as that it seemed like that in character was intended to be. 
you know? So I thought David Carver was good. So yeah, it, it, apparently there was a lot of, well, now I'm just pulling that up on Wikipedia. At some point it was also, yeah, so I think you said Josh Brolin, but also Sebastian Stan and John Cena. So, I mean, Cena who, makes, who knows? Cena makes sense if he's like the Frasier character, like like the heavy or something like that, you know? Right, right. Hey, now you're the one making fun of his weight. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I know, I know, I know what heavy means. I know what heavy means. I was making, <laughs> I was making a joke. <laughs> um, yeah. And no. by, by the way, one thing that I miss most about Frazier is like his voice. It's like, like he he, he has like the, like you know, it's one of those things like you could do a lot with like Frazier's voice. Um, I think. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to quickly give a shout out to Amy Simons, too. I can't remember if I mentioned her when I was talking about the people earlier. She's like a welcome presence whenever she pops up and stuff. And I mean, look, this movie, the plot is what the plot is. So uh, there's only going to be so many female roles when it's a 50s movie set in like a corporate and gangster world. But I think she I think she makes the most of what she's given to do. But I just overall think it's pretty cool that like I already kind of mentioned earlier that, look, he got this movie done. It's uh, again, the kind of movie that, like, you know, we always say we want more of. And the fact is, I don't think he's doing it for the same kind of budget. Like, when people talk about wanting mid-level budget movies, they're thinking 30 to $40 million. And I have a feeling, because of how efficient he is and how economical is, he's not having to pay – he's not doing it on that big of a budget. So, one, he's creating this version of Detroit, but two, he gets these casts. And I, when I was reading a little bit about uh, – when I was reading a little bit earlier about – uh, let them all talk. There was like a Meryl Streep quote where I think she might have been kind of fascistic, but she's like, he made this movie for 25 cents. I know that was all that that was all I was paid. I don't think she did the movie like totally on points or whatever. You know, it was I think maybe even made for HBO Max. But like, I think I, I took that to mean that like she's doing it for a fraction of whatever you normally have to pay to get Meryl Streep. So I think it's really cool for Soderbergh that like he's at this point where he's frustrated enough with like the normal distribution channels that he just doesn't want to make regular studio movies anymore. He'll do it in whatever way he can and put it on a streamer. But like people like working with him enough that they'll do that. Like he'll get Meryl Streep to come like just do it for not a lot of money because she likes working with him and she gets to sit on a boat with her with Candace Bergen and Diane Weist. Like I think it's really cool that he's like gotten to that point where people respect him that much where he can just like get get all these people together to presumably like not make a ton of money. And like, you know, it, that reminds me a lot of like the old Woody Allen like strategy, like prior before he was now like officially like a canceled or, you know, semi canceled, whatever you want to, you know, depending on the country, I guess. Yeah. Um but like with him, it's like, you know, his movies are his budgets are really low, but he has like a lot of stars that would star in his films and like large ensembles like Soderbergh. And the main thing was like he does some of them in period pieces, too. Yeah, he did. Yeah. 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 And the thing the main thing was like actors would be paid like uh, like scale, like um, which is, you know, what you were legally allowed to pay them through like SAG for the amount of hours they worked. But the appeal was just, hey, I get to be in a Woody Allen film. And I think with Soderbergh, it's the same thing. And I think with Soderbergh, too, I find it like he's probably one of the masters of ensembles. Because, like, I think other directors that do work with large casts, like Nolan and um, Wes Anderson in particular, sometimes I feel like their ensembles are big for the sake of having a big ensemble. Where That, like, French, that French Dispatch cast is something. I mean, yeah, but I've the thing with lately with like like Wes Anderson movies, it's like, all right, you have like these 12 like very famous actors or whatever, and like not all of them get that much to do. And it's just sort of I'm just relying on the fact that like this person's pres like this person's presence will like carry it, but like they don't really have much of a character, you know what I mean? Um, whereas like Every you know, it's a large cast, is a large notable cast in no sudden move, but it feels like everybody 
you know is cast appropriately like and they they're given shit to chew on as opposed to hey isn't it nice that we have adrian brody right here you know what i mean yeah no for sure i I, it's in i feel like shit i i I couldn't tell you exactly which voices were which in you know uh isle of dogs but like isle of dogs had like a ridiculous voice cast and it's like i don't know maybe there's like a diminishing returns thing at some point where it's like soderbergh whereas soderbergh like if you get further down the further down the road like they're like i don't think he's gonna have like quite as big of a name in that like ninth role or whatever whereas like i think that might have been greta gerwig or someone in iowa dogs and yeah. uh and, and here it's like you know it's that that makes sense for julia fox to do some to follow up uncut gems like something like that and she's still recognizable though no like so like for instance like like in this movie right the bill duke character um you know bill duke you and i know who he is we respect him that's a good character actor right i feel like if this was a Nolan film, putting it aside the racial politics of this film, like I feel like it, like a small role like that, he'd be like, "Let me give you Michael Caine," and whether or not Michael Caine is right for the role is just like for the sake of like Michael Caine's presence is gonna carry all the shit for you, yeah. like the lack of characterization. You know what I mean? Whereas yeah. like I think a, a strong character actor probably could give you could find more into the role by you know they're just happy to have the shot you know what i mean yeah i got you um yeah uh trying to think about, i i don't know man like i i feel like we pretty well covered it even if we just enjoy talking about soderbergh more than we enjoy talking about this movie but i think we made it clear there's like there's stuff to respect here the fact that it's so easily accessible on hbo max i think it's i think it's worth checking out we should all just like support soderbergh and his endeavors uh just to give him whatever streaming just, numbers will, will press hbo max so they'll let him do something else that's maybe potentially lands more with us you know yeah, yeah, I full I fully support Soderbergh. I su- fully support all his experimental endeavors, even if they don't f- always click with me, which most of the time they actually do. I'm a I love Soderbergh. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, if he ever wants to produce the Oscars again, no, I can't. That that's where he loses me. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I, 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 will, I will second that, but I don't want to slander him too much on the way out because again, he's my guy. He's my guy also. Uh, Josh, do you have anything else you want to uh, you want to plug? Anything else you've been watching recently? We haven't talked to you in a while. Anything else you want to direct the people towards uh, as we uh, as we kind of hit the stretch of summer movie season? Um, yeah, this is I don't know about you. Like, it's kind of weird because it's like we're going back to the movies and like it's summer movie season. So there's more high profile profile films being dropped. But it's not like the same where like, you know, every week I could find three movies in, in in the theater that's playing that i would see and now there's like only like one that i i have to like see you know what i mean mm-hmm. um because there's less movies now um but it's fun getting back into the groove of that um and the last great movie i saw was the forever purge which you know you gotta call me up mm-hmm. you gotta let me i need to be your purge correspondent so there's probably going to be another purge because this is like a fast and furious situation where they're just going to keep going until a movie like doesn't make money yeah and also with the purge i would say like a fast and furious the series is getting better as it really? goes on okay yeah. okay yeah, yeah like i thought this was the best one yet um and there's a lot to chew on here because it has an immigration message like you i think you would like the purge franchise because they're so reactionary to the current politics so there's always stuff to chew on Okay, yeah, I'm sold. I guess I'd been kind of inching towards thinking about watching those at some point, but this new one just kind of snuck up on me. I, I just hadn't really, no, I didn't even realize it was like already this close until like the weekend, this past weekend. Uh, so 
I, that, that's a good recommendation. I mean, I'm sure and maybe in two years we'll have another one and I will make it uh, I will make it a point to catch up on them by then. And, uh, and make it a point to have me be your purge correspondent. You, 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 you can be the purge guy. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm your Clint Eastwood guy. I'm your ambitious auteur with a CGI budget fiasco guy. <laughs> yeah, you're, um, yeah. So you're already, even though like we haven't ever talked about them on this podcast before, you're already our purge guy and our avatar guy. You, sorry, you're, that's, 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 that's that's just you. And I mean, I mean, I I, I mean, who knows if like. By by this time, like we might not get Avatar. Th- like, let's just give J- James James Cameron the benefit of the doubt and say Avatar two will actually come out in December 2022. Not holding my breath. Like as of now, they have a set schedule where there's gonna be like then like one every other year for like the next five years. So you yeah. know, being at the I don't know how much longer I'm gonna keep doing the podcast going. I'm sure I'll be doing it by the time the next Avatar one comes out. But not I don't know about Avatar. Three, so you might just be the Avatar guy for like one Avatar movie or something like that. So. I will, I will hold on to that mantle. So, and also, I got to be your West Side Story guy. Like you get, you, you just like um, there, there's things on that we got to do a, you know, what's the double bill? The Cry Macho West Side Story episode. Like that's my episode in December. Okay. Cry Macho West Side Story. <laughs> 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 I forgot. I forgot about. I don't. I don't even remember what the description for Cry Macho was. But I got a. I got a real kick out of it whenever I saw it. Um, yeah, no, no. It's, let's let's tell the readers. Let's get them hyped. Let's get oh, the because this one might be Clint Eastwood's last film. All right, like he made Dude. this during quarantine at like ninety three. Yeah, I mean, well, the, he survived doing that. Uh, <laughs> like nine year old Clint Eastwood survived making a movie. In, like they filmed it before the vaccine. I'm almost sure. So yeah. like, I mean, it's just insane. Like it's, you know, it's like, and, and that's, it's, I'd say it's different than like, uh, did you, watch, did you watch hacks on HBO max? No, I have not. I have not. Oh dude, you got to dude. That, that's very much your thing. I'll tell you that now. I mean, I've already plugged it before, but like Gene smart, I think might be diabetic and they filmed all of that during COVID. Uh, but like you could just, I think it's easier to probably almost easier to distance people from like the lead. If you could shoot it certain ways. And it's like, you're the director, like you're in the middle of everything. Like, I don't know how they did that. Uh, yeah. A, <laughs> he's like 90. Yeah, a, a, a one-time oh and he's oh forgot he's acting in it oh man yeah that's definitely <laughs> insane uh a one-time rodeo star and washed up horse breeder takes a job to bring a man's young son home and away from his alcoholic mom on their journey the horseman finds redemption through teaching the boy what it means to be a good man honestly this might seem like more of a daniel movie than a you movie with all the horse but, stuff but um, honestly but they're going to mexico to go into mexico um i feel like <laughs> i feel like clint has a think, lot do of think, do, you, do you think clint has another threesome in him no, but I think Clint has a lot of s- to say about the border crisis. Oh, boy. <laughs> hey, to be fair, I think the mule was far more progressive than we had expected. Yeah, I mean, like, it, it, I mean, in it, it, its own way, it was advocating for us not to like criminalize drugs, you know. Um, and also, I think like the cartels are pre- painted in a better light than the cops in that movie. I can't say I specifically remember that, but it's been shit. It's been almost three years since we did talk about that one. Um, was that the was that the no, last? No, no, wait, no, no. The mule was 2019. Um, yeah, Richard Jewell. No, no. Uh, yeah, I thought the mule oh, was wait, 2018. No. Yeah. Okay. Is, oh yeah, we did the mule and welcome to Marwin in the same episode. Yeah. Yeah. Richard, Richard Jewell was 2019. You're right. You're right. And I did that right. I had yeah, to. Have... You. Yeah, you're the Clint guy. Yeah. I'm the Clint guy. <laughs> God, I did not. I did not see. I did not think he was gonna act again. I actually thought he was good in the mule. Like I'm interested to see like if he still has it. Yeah, it's no, just, he's... that's such a ridiculous movie though, and a ridiculous title. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm the Clint guy. Like, I, I, I'm happy to do that. Uh, let me go back to the, that, that. That's all I really care about. Cry Macho, West Side Story. You got to have me on. And then from there, like, we got to do, like, maybe we should wait until all the avatars are released and to, like, to fully. <laughs> that should be its own epic episode. I gotta, I, dude, I, I don't know if I can keep the podcast going that long. I mean, at some point I expect to like have a family and have other commitments in life. If I'm still doing this podcast by the time Avatar 6 comes out, something has like gone wrong in life. Like I should but be you like. Could, you could take your whole family to see it if you think about it though. Like get sure. them on the Navi train, you know. It, actually, your kid's first word, it should be a Navi. <laughs> Sure. sure. That's, that's a good note to end on. Josh, uh, you don't, you, do you have any social media you want to plug or no? You don't, you don't usually do that. Yeah, I guess my photography account on Instagram. Oh, right, right, right. Brown yeah, Film Collective. Do you have any other vacations planned before you have to go back to the, for the school year? I mean, yeah, people people look out for stuff. I enjoyed your uh, photography from your recent trip out west. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, no, unfortunately, right now I'm in survival mode. Like, I'm, I'm just hustling. I'm hustling. Okay. Just like the characters in No Sudden Move. <laughs> there you go. Uh, as usual, I'm Josh Jernavoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-B-O-Y on Twitter and Letterboxd. Uh, podcast email is uh, the Rewind Movie Pod at gmail.com, and the Twitter is at Rewind Movie Pod. Send any feedback, suggestions that way. Uh, coming up next, I'm assuming we'll have an episode on Zola based on the order of when I put these out in um and then after that uh, it's t- probably time for black widow so uh thanks again to josh for joining me thanks to all of you for listening and we'll see you next time